Well, here we are. We're going to go back, and we are in Exodus chapter 33, and we're continuing our exposition right through the book of Exodus, and we just happen to be at the 33rd chapter. This is a unique section in Scripture that is through the Exodus story. We've been tracing Israel being delivered out of slavery in Egypt. They've now come to Mount Sinai to meet with God. Everything seemed to be going great. We spent a number of weeks talking about the special house that God directed them to build, that God might live right with them. And yet then we saw the last couple of weeks, the golden calf. They disobeyed God and dishonored him with this idol pretty much straight away. And that's changed things for them and changed the trajectory of where they're at. And so that's where we return as we continue that story as we come to chapter 33. Uh, But before I set that up, I want to tell you a story. It's a story that really haunts me. Um, I say it's a story. From what I was told, it was true. It's one of those. Uh, But this was a story I heard in seminary more than once. And actually, I ran into someone after first service who had heard the same story from his pastor that he heard when he was in seminary. But here it is. This was a story. It's one of those moral lessons like don't do what this guy did and get the results that he had. So this is a story they would tell us as we were coming into seminary, you know, as these young husbands, uh, fledgling students, and they gave us the story of warning. And the story goes like this, that after attending his graduation ceremony and and having so then finished this arduous Master of Divinity degree, uh, the newly minted pastor, so to speak, went back to his apartment after the graduation, and he went back looking for his wife uh, as they were going to then head together to go to the graduation party. Only as he came into his rather small apartment, he realized he couldn't find his wife anywhere. And uh, he did notice something strange. He noticed that on their bed were all of his seminary books with a note that said something like, you wanted to spend all your time with your books. Well, now you can sleep with them true or not, I remember it like it was true. And I said, Lord, have mercy upon me. May my studies, whether in school or in the pastorate, pray for your elders. Never lead us to neglect our greatest priorities, our family that the Lord's given us. All that to say, I don't think, back to that story, I don't think that guy felt like going to any kind of graduation party then. I don't think that guy felt like or was qualified to go to any church to be a shepherd or pastor if his wife was not accompanying him. Well, in a similar way, Israel discovers suddenly, so to speak, that God's not going to go with them to the promised land after all. Uh, They can have the land. They can have his blessings. uh, They just can't have him. Now, why not? It's because of their sin. You know, we talked about the golden calf. They've so provoked God that this relationship between a God who is perfectly holy and a people who are sinners, like all of us too, by the way, it just seems hopeless, can't happen. And that is true. It is hopeless were it not for one ingredient, a crucial one, that we cannot live without. The only way a relationship between a holy God and a sinful person or people can happen, you need grace. For anyone and any time to have any kind of relationship with God, you need grace. That is, His undeserved favor. We are nowhere without His grace. We are nowhere without the grace of our God, the undeserved, unearned love that He sets upon His people in Christ Jesus. That's what we'll see this morning. 
and we'll conclude it, say, at the end, and that should humble us, that there's nothing that we can claim but by the grace of God. But at the same time, that is the best news in all the world. It should make us the most hopeful. And so let's see this play out. We're going to see really what we have without grace and make us appreciate what we then have with it. So in the first place, without God's grace, what do we see? This means you can't be near his holiness. Verses 1 to 6. Without grace, you can't be near his holiness. Without grace, this just means that you deserve just wrath. It's just because it's right. It's what you deserve for your sin and rebellion, all of us here. His holy justice, his holiness demands your elimination, not the toleration of your presence. And that comes to show in this text, as we look now at Exodus 33, it's really, it really comes out of the aftermath of the whole golden calf experiment they had building this idol. Now, God initially said, hey, I'm going to wipe you out. Moses intercedes and says, you probably shouldn't do that. And God says, okay, I'm not going to wipe you out. That was kind of the happy ending. Yet, as we turn the page now to chapter 33, we find out all is not well. For even though God says, yes, I'm not going to wipe you out. I'm going to keep my promises. I'm going to let you go to the promised land. But here's the thing, I'm not going with you. You're going to have to go on without him. So as we begin in verse 1, the Lord, he gives Moses the instructions to get Israel, this 2 million plus people, up and moving and get them setting out to the promised land, this land that he had promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth. Begins there, it says, depart, he says, go up from here, you and the people, to the land which I swore. I promised you this, and I'm going to keep my word, just like you reminded me, Moses. I'm going to give it to you. In other words, he's not wiping him out. He's keeping his word. And then in verse 2, he even promises, well, I'm going to pave the way for you. I'm going to have my messenger go before you. He's going to even drive out those occupying nations in the promised land, you know, like the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, and all the ites. And he's going to fight for them through this messenger. And they find in verse 3, it's a good land too. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, it says. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. That's an expression. It's a land flowing with blessings. It's just overflowing with goodness to make productive, healthy animals. That accounts for the milk and abundant vines, honey-like syrups, so to speak. This is just a land of luxury. It's the best. That's what he's going to give them. He's going to give them the very best land, so to speak, on earth. You have no better place to go than where I'm sending you. There's no better neighborhood. There's no better place to raise your family. This is it. But there's a catch. Middle of verse 3. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. You can have all my blessings, you can have the best land, but you can't have me. And why not? He tells him, lest I consume you on the way, because you're a stiff-necked people. We encountered that term last time, and again, just the picture that resonates in my mind is trying to walk my dog without her special collar. If I walk my dog without that special collar on, she just, she goes her own way. She has a stiff neck. The squirrel, yep, she's after the squirrel, or she's after that dog. And I'm doing this the whole time. I'm not walking her. I'm getting walked by the dog. Well, that's what the stiff neck expression's like. And that's us. We go our own way, looking and pulling against God and his direction. What is that in theological terms? That's our sin nature, our bent on rebellion. 
We have a stiff neck against God's way. And God's saying, well, here's the issue. Because of that sinful tendency in you, it's dangerous if I go with you. And he goes on to say, even for a second, a moment, look down to verse 5. A single second more, and it might be the end of you. Verse 5, he says, you are again a stiff-necked people, for if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. That's how incompatible a holy God and sinful people are. They don't mix. His righteous holiness cannot just let sin sit idly by. And be constantly overlooked as if he would say, I approve of this, or I accept this, or I tolerate, or I like it. No, his holiness won't let him do that. And he's like, he's saying, my holiness nearly destroyed you already. I was on the cusp of doing it. We can't risk it, guys. I can't go up with you. Holiness and sin, they don't mix. And it's not like they don't mix like, Oil and water don't mix. Holiness and sin don't mix like kindling thrown in the fire doesn't mix. The one consumes the other. You go on, I'll stay behind, have the promised land, just you can't have me go with you. Now, if you could put yourself in their sandals, what would you say to that proposition? Does that sound okay? To have the promised land, but not the promiser? To have the giver's greatest gifts, but not the giver? What if he said, yeah, I'll let you go to heaven. I'm just not going to be there. Would you still want to go? And if you're wondering in your heart, honestly, what you would answer, and if you're considering that, Well, get this, these stiff-necked Israelites, they knew what the right answer was. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on their ornaments. They saw that proposal for what it was, a disastrous word. Literally in the Hebrew, just an evil word. A heaven with no God is no heaven at all. And so what's to be done when your sin's been exposed? And he's saying, because of this, I can't be with you. Well, the Israelites here, stiff-necked as they were, they get it right. What do they do? They mourn and they weep. That's the right response. They take off all their ornaments. They take off all their dress-ups. They take off anything that smacks of celebration and happiness, and they go into mourning. And again, there's a shock here for where we've been building up through the, the book of Exodus. Right? I mean, we spent like weeks and weeks, like months, working through all the details of this tent, this tabernacle, so God could dwell with them. And now God's like, you know, you're just so sinful. You can just take that part of your Bible and rip it out. You can delete all those sermons off the internet. Not that they're that significant, but the words we studied were. Just those plans, we don't need them. I mean, all that talk about the veils, the separations, the holy places, the more holy places, the sacrifices, substitutes, priests, cleansings, washings, all of that, but none of it was enough. None of it was enough because they are so stubborn, we are, in our sin. 
And what, so, because what would be happening? Every day he'd be trying to take away your sin. And then what do we do right in response? We just build it right back up again. It's like we're provoking him, just jabbing him in the eye with our rebellion. And he says, listen, we can't risk that. My holiness would just end it there. Forget all I've said about building this life together, this health together, and we're going to live together in the promised land. Uh, We can't do it. The constant stench of our sin keeps the holy God at bay. And so what's to be done? Mourn and weep. That's where you start. Have you ever done that? Have you really mourned over your sin? And to be clear, I don't mainly mean shedding tears. Because you can, that might be a good sign, but you can fool yourself or think you're fooling God with crocodile tears, right? But there is a godly grief, a mourning, a heartfelt weeping over what we've done, who we've dishonored, what we've lost over our sin, a godly grief that leads us actually back to God. That's what godly grief does. It produces a change in us that leads to repentance. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7. He describes it like this, and he contrasts godly grief with worldly grief. And he says this, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. A godly grief, a godly sorrow over what you've done, it, it leads you to a change of heart, a repentance, a returning back to God. And Paul says that leads to salvation, that leads to rescue, and one that you'll never regret. Whereas worldly grief, he says, so you got grief, you got godly grief and you got worldly grief, but here's the product of worldly grief. Worldly grief produces death. And if you're like, well, what does that mean? You got godly grief that goes to salvation, and you got worldly grief that goes to death. How does this work? I think it's best pictured as you consider two of the disciples that denied Jesus. So, on the one hand, you got Judas. That's worldly grief. What did he do in view of his grief? I mean, he was grieved over his sin. Remember that? We studied in Matthew. He went back to the, the Jewish leaders and said, I've betrayed an innocent man. He saw the wrong or something of the wrong that he had done. But it didn't lead him to change. It didn't lead him to repentance. Where did it lead him? To death. He wouldn't go back to Jesus. He wouldn't crawl back to Jesus. Instead, he hopelessly ended his own life. In contrast, you got Peter. He denied Jesus three times to his face. And yet, the godly grief brought him back to Christ. And Christ even came out for him. And reaffirmed him three times, just like the three he had been denied, fully restoring Peter and sending him on into fruitful ministry. You can have grief, but where does it go? Well, godly grief, to grieve in a godly way, brings you back to God, and that changes you. So how do you feel about your sin? Are you grieved in a godly way? Does it cause you to regret and to mourn and to turn you back to God? Or do you weep and cry, but then you stay in your sin? Well, that is a grief that leads to death because it hasn't led you back to God. But maybe worse is even you're unfeeling about your sin. There's no safety there either. Now, for Israel, their grief 
It does something. And it's that first show of repentance and change in the heart. And at that, the Lord, so to speak, as we talked about, relents or appears to reconsider. We see it at the end of verse 5. He says, So now, Israel, take off your ornaments, that is, mourn and weep, that I may know what to do with you. Now, this is the all-knowing God. He doesn't need to figure, he doesn't need, like, time to, like, figure out what to do with you. But it's like the expression we talked about a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, that the Lord relented. The Lord doesn't really change his mind, but he's putting into words how we experience life so we can understand what he's, so to speak, feeling or how he's responding. And it's their confession, their grief, that gives the Lord pause in this sequence. In other words, he likes that. He wants that from them. That they would see their evil, see the wrong, and turn from it. And at that, he will pause. He will wait. He'll reconsider, so to speak. But why? But only because he is a gracious God. We'll speak more to that. But it begins with us mourning, seeing our sin for what it is. We've defrauded our God. We've put his love and fellowship at bay. So it begins in our heart that we would weep and repent. Without his grace, you can't be near him. But without his grace, also, you can't have God's favor. Verses 7 to 14, you can't have his approval were it not for the grace of God. So we might lament the situation our sin is created. Israel's certainly doing that here. But then what's to be done about it? And what unfolds is in this text, what becomes really clear of ourselves, what's to be done about it? In the end, yeah, you can weep and cry, but in the end, nothing. Because you can't earn his approval back. This humbles us. The only solution is casting yourself wholly before the grace of God, that he would somehow, for no reason of yours, be favorable to you. That's grace. And this shows as Moses begins to plead with God on Israel's behalf once more. And that pleading really starts in verse 12. But before we get there, we're given the backstory in verses 7 to 11 on how Moses typically conversed with God at this time. Of course, he'd been on Mount Sinai before, and so he's talking with God directly now. But now it mentions in verses 7 to 14 this tent of meeting, the special tent where God and Moses could talk. Now, we need to clarify something. The tent of meeting described here is not the tent of meeting, if you know what I'm talking about. That is Exodus 25 through 31, the tabernacle. This is not what we're talking about. This tent of meeting is a special tent only for Moses. There's no ark in this tent. There's no sacrifices about this tent. There's no veils and cherubim and any of that stuff. It's a special tent just for Moses, that when Moses was inside the tent, the pillar of cloud, God would come and appear outside the tent and speak from the outside into the tent. God didn't even go into this tent to see Moses, but it was still the way that Moses could speak directly with God. It was a private tent set up by Moses to speak with God, and intimately so. Look at verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now the point is not that Moses saw God's face. That's not the point of this expression. Because we saw at the end of this chapter, no man can see God's face and live. So that's not what we're getting at. What is we getting at then? It's explained by that expression, as a man speaks to his friend. That's what it means. And what does that mean? Moses has this privileged place to speak 
openly to God and to hear from him, to have that friendly exchange. Like the way you talk to your best friend is the way God and Moses are able to interact freely, openly. Well, because of that, he's now able to go before God on Israel's behalf once more. But interestingly, as we start in verse 12, where Moses begins on his intercession, he seems to call into question his very favored status, even represented by this tent. He wonders about it before God. Look at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, God, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. What's Moses getting at here? He's saying, you told me to go up, but you're not telling me who's coming with us. Namely, you're not coming with us. Yet you've said that you love me and you have set your favor on me. What's Moses saying? You said you set your favor on me, but it sure doesn't look like favor if you're not going to come with us. Have you ever been in that interaction, like as a family or friends, and suddenly your family or friend is just like, yeah, you guys go on to dinner. I don't want to come. And everybody's like, ah, dude, something's wrong, right? It doesn't feel like favor if you're not willing to come with us. How can you say you love me and not join us? This is untenable for Moses and disastrous for the people. We saw that. And so that's why Moses is pleading. And so Moses is pleading, God, so what can we do about this? What can be done? How can I, how can I convince you to join us out of here into the promised land? Look at verse 13. What can I do to change things? Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me your, now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight and consider too that this nation is your people. What he's chiefly asking for is there in the middle of verse 13. He says, please show me now your ways. I want to know what you're like. I want to know your ways. I want to know how you work, what you're doing, what you're thinking. Why? He says, so I can know you to find favor in your sight. I want to know how you think, what, you're, what you love, so that I can win your love. So I can woo you back. What can I do to get you back on our side? What can I do to please you that you would be satisfied and you would come? You know, really, it's not too different than, like, say, a young man trying to court or get the attention of a young woman. And he's trying to figure out what makes this lady tick, Right? what's her favorite candy? What is her favorite book? I don't know. What, what are you trying to uh, persuade young women with these days, right? What's her social media handle? I don't know how this works. But he, he, he wants to catch her attention. He wants to give her what pleases her so that she would be looking to him. In a way, Moses is trying to woo God to stay on his side. That I might know you in order to find favor and, and keep that favor, is the idea, in your sight. So show me what you're like. Show me what you love. And dare I say, it kind of sounds like, show me how I can get your approval back. What can I do? Because again, not going with us doesn't sound like favor at all. Well, here is what the Lord tells him. Here's the Lord's response in verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Wow. 
I'll grant you what you're really asking for, Moses. I'll go with you. I'll lead the way. I'll go up with you. I'll be with you. The interesting thing is this is not exactly or more precisely what Moses asked. He was trying to get there, but he thought he had to go through this middle step of, well, how do I get your favor back? Because notice the Lord's response to what Moses asked wasn't, well, here's the 12 steps of reconciliation. Step one, nor does he give him like a Christmas list. Well, these are the things I would like, Moses. Tick off a few of these and we'll reconsider this whole situation. Well, I need to know you so I can have your approval, so I can have your favor. What can I do? And nor does the Lord give some long list of penances or things they need to do. Well, if you give this much amount of money, what's the Lord's response? He just promises to do it. I'll go with you. I won't leave. I won't leave you, that is. I'm going. In other words, this wasn't something actually Moses could earn or work for or even try and guarantee from God that God would go with them. Why? Because it has to come by grace. It just has to be gifted to them. Why did God say, I'm going to go? Because Moses asked. That's it. And that's seen here by this repeated exchange in word here. We talk about favor, right? I know you by name. I found favor in your sight. What I got to do to know you and to find favor in your sight? That word favor translated here, it's normally or often translated from the Hebrew, just grace. It's the word for grace, which is a gift. Grace is in reference to God's unmerited favor, unearned approval and commendation. Not a commendation based on performance or works or what you have done or right deeds, but a love granted just because he wanted love. I love you not because you earned it. I love you because I love you. In other words, though, you understand, this means there is no, there's nothing you can do to earn his favor or gain his approval. It can only come as a grace to you. It can only just be given to you as a gift. And we might initially scoff at that and say, I don't want it to be that way. But if you think about it, that is the most marvelous news in all the world. Why is that? Because if it rests on you, you could never get his approval back. But if he's a God of grace who just gives it, oh, there's hope for sinners like you and me. I mean, that's how our own salvation works. God's favor just has to be gifted to us. Just by what we say, grace alone, not earned. I mean, this is what we celebrate from Ephesians, isn't it? For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And to be clear, it's not of your own doing. Why? Because it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And so what do we see here in Exodus? What does Moses do to get God's favor? Really, nothing. He just asks in faith, in desperate hope, and God answers because he's a gracious God and says, yeah, I will go with the stiff-necked people because I'm that gracious. And it's not because Moses said, well, please go with us because I think we'll do better next time. I think they've turned a corner. They're really grieving and repentant this time. 
No, it's because he is a gracious God. And so when salvation comes, and then God, as we'll talk about, now even dwells within you because of what Christ has done. He's regenerated you and changed your heart. You've trusted in Christ. When that happens, understand you did nothing to earn that. You've been graced, favored. Oh, that's humbling. Because you got no claim. You got nothing to boast about. Oh, but it's hopeful too. Because that's the only way stiff-necked sinners can find mercy. Because it rests in a work, just not mine, but the work of Jesus Christ. Without God's grace, you can't have his favor. And also, without his grace, you can't enjoy his presence. You need grace to get his presence. Verses 15 to 17. And really, this is what grace is for. It's to get you with God, intimately and close. And conversely, it works like this, Moses understands. And if you don't have him, that means you don't have his grace and you're not yet one of his. Moses gets the logic of this. That's why he pleads the way he does with God on the basis of this. Look at verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Now, I find this at the first almost humorous. Like, what are you talking about? Read verses 14 and 15 with me here. That is, follow along as I read to be clear. But read these both together. And God said... My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses says in the next verse, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses, he just said he's going to go. Why, oh, why are you acting like if you don't come up with us? It's like, Moses, didn't you hear what he said? In one way, it's like grace is that good. You're not even sure that's true. No way. It can be by salvation, by grace through faith alone. Is that really what you said? Oh, yeah. But more than this, Moses also, he's pleading to secure from God explicitly what's been implied so far. And I'll tell you that because as we look at verse 14 again, um, it helps if we know a little bit about Hebrew, I suppose. We've dealt with this before. But it says in verse 14, God said, this is the assurance he gives at the first request, and he said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Now, Hebrew, like Greek, has a way to talk about you, singular, like my brother David here, and has a way to talk about you, as in, in the South, we'd say, y'all. Well, when he says here in verse 14, my presence will go with you, he means my presence is going to go with you, Moses. And I will give you, Moses, rest. Now, the implication is, well, of course, Moses, if I'm going with you, I'm going with everybody. But Moses is not going to be content with that assumption. He wants to make the implicit explicit. You need to tell me you're going with us. And so that's why as he continues to plead with God, notice the repeated phrase in verse 16, I and your people, I and your people. Look at verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? Not just me though, right? I and your people. And what does favor look like? Is it not in your going with us? so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. He understands this is what makes you the people of God. It's that God is with you. 
You understand, that's what defines you, that God is with you as his people. It's more so than that he saved you. It's more so than that he's redeemed you or that he's rescued you. What makes you his people is that he saved you, but for himself, to know you, to be with him, and to have a relationship with him. That's what defines you as the people of God. That's why to to look back in chapter 19, remember as he's bringing Israel out of Egypt and he brings them to Mount Sinai, here's one of the first things he tells them. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings. And then what does he say? And brought you where? To myself. He bought them and brought them and saved them so they could know him and be with him and have a relationship with him. And so Moses' request wholly aligns with God's plan all along. And so, of course, God will honor that. Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you've spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And what is that thing that he's spoken that he's going to do? I'm going to go with you. And not just you. I'm going up with everybody. This is my people. I will dwell with them. Now, why? why? Why do Moses and the people find favor? Why do they find grace with God? Why? Because our God is a gracious God. That's why. In other words, it's not them, it's him. And, and that's always the case. That's true for us now in Christ. If you are in Christ, you've trusted in Christ, he's your redeemer. That's true about you in a way that Moses could only dream about. Because you get it. The whole point of all the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the washings, and the priest, it was so God could live nearby. But get this, by the sacrifice of Christ, by bearing your sins, he has so purified you, so sanctified you, not so he can only be near you, but he actually goes to live inside of you. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that when we've believed in the good news of Jesus Christ, we are sealed in that way and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Paul uses the analogy in 1 Corinthians 3. He talks about we are the temple where God's Spirit dwells. And the logic works the other way. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you don't belong to him. And you're not part of his people. He says this, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. What's the point? When God's grace comes upon you, and so his spirit comes in you, you're going to be different. You got to be. Paul makes that point. He continues, Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life Energy, movement to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. What's the point? God, when he comes to live in you, you can't be the same. Such that Ezekiel 36 talks about he causes you to walk in his commandments. Not yet perfect, sure, but more like him. We're different. His grace, his presence makes you different. But notice this, and this is really important. It is not get yourself changed, get yourself clean, 
Get yourself worthy for his grace, and then he'll come live with you. Now, that's not how this works. He graces you with his presence, and when he does that, you're different. So how about you? Have you changed? Are you different? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit coming out of you? I know many in this room, and I'd say, praise God, yeah. We're not perfect at all. But I see the grace of Christ in this congregation often. I don't know the heart, though. The Lord does. Ask Him to show you your heart. Again, it's not about perfection at all, but it's a direction, consistency. Are you seeking Him? Are you different? Because understand, this is what grace was for. For Him to live with you, to make you different. Not just to forgive you, but to bring His presence into your life and so change you. But that's all by grace. Fourth, without grace, you can't understand His glory. Verses 18 to 23. Now by this... I need to clarify what I mean here. I don't mean, though that's true, that you need His grace to understand His glory. No, that's all true. But what I mean is, is without grace, that concept, you cannot even understand what His glory means. What do I mean by that is? His grace actually is His glory in so many ways. Let's see this. And it shows itself here now as Moses. He's been intercessing for the people, but now things are getting personal. And he has one more personal request, and, uh, you know, he just, you know, goes for the moon. Why not? Verse 18. Moses says, please show me your glory. What's he saying? I've tasted of something so good. In the grace of mercy of God here, you've got to give me more. I've seen what you're like, and i got to have more. He's had the appetite. He's had the appetizer. It's wet his appetite for more grace, and he's saying, i got to have more. Show me your glory. Now, really, I don't think Moses knows what he's asking for in full. Seems like he's asking for a full, frontal, direct view of the holy God with his sinful eyes. And God's like, yeah, we can't do that, right? Verse 20, he says, You can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But the way the Lord responds, the answer isn't quite no either. Moses asked for glory, and here's what God says. Verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. We talked about this, Yahweh. And so while God cannot let Moses take a full view of his unadulterated glory with physical eyes, the Lord says, yeah, but I'll add some courses to this glory grace meal. I'll give you a couple more tastes, a couple more ways to experience my greatness here. And first off, he promises this, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now, what is that? Well, we look down to verse 22, and we start to piece this all together. We see that it's still actually his glory that passes by. Though Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock, and there is God's hand covering him, protecting him to be sure. But Moses asks, show me your glory. 
God says in verse 19, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. And then as he describes it in verse 22, I'm going to have my glory pass before you. Well, which is it? Is it God's goodness that's going to pass before Moses or God's glory that's going to pass before Moses? And you know this answer. Yes, sir. Why? Because his glory and his goodness, they are in many ways the same thing. And that explains the other part of Moses or the other part of God's answer to Moses' request here. You can't see God's greatness and glory with physical eyes, but I'll let you hear about it with your physical ears. For after he says he's going to literally let his goodness pass before the covered protected Moses, back to verse 19, the Lord adds this. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And he doesn't mean merely you're going to hear my name pronounced. You're going to figure out what my name means because that is my glory. And what is this? It's recorded for us in the next chapter. When God's glory does pass in front of Moses and we get a glimpse or really we get the echo or the sound of what God's glory was like and it doesn't come in a sight, it comes in a sound. In other words, you want to see the glory of God? You want to taste and know the greatness of our God? Then listen. Listen to the sound and the weight of his name. Look at verse 5 of the next chapter. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, or, I mean, this is his private covenant name, Yahweh, Yahweh. Who is this? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and the idea is generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the greatness and goodness and glory of God. It is seen here that he is Yahweh, a God merciful, abounding in grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, so abounding in forgiveness, whatever name you give the transgression, iniquity, transgression, sin, whatever you want to call it, he forgives that too. This is what defines our God. He is more merciful, more gracious, more loving, more forgiving, better than you can really imagine. Now, because he's the Lord, don't think that's because he's so good, because he's so forgiving, so kind, that you then can manipulate him and his grace. Because understand, for it to be grace, it has to be a gift that means it's something you have no rights or claim to. And if you ever think you did, the beginning of this whole episode tells us, well, by your sin, you forfeited any right to it. And that's underscored for us as we continue through verse 19, and he says this, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. It's his choice, not yours. And you can't even force him. And we want to object. What does this passage show us in the beginning? What, what would actually be fair for Israel? 
What would be fair for us? What would be just for every sinner in this room? Which is all of us, by the way, in case you think it's not me. Here's fair. Let me remind you. Exodus 33, verse 5. Here's fair. You are a stiff-necked people, for if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. That's fair. That's justice. And instead of fair, he gives grace. He shows off how merciful and gracious he can be by taking guilty sinners, a people that are dead to rights, that got nothing to offer but blame, and he gives them grace in Christ. This is what we celebrate in the gospel, isn't it? Again, back to Ephesians. But God, oh, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he's made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul just has to interject and say what? By grace, you've been saved. That's what it is. It's no credit to you. It's all because of him. Do you see what the grace of Christ has done? If you've come to faith and you've come under Christ, what he has given you, I mean, back to what's behind me there, that says without God's grace. Well, in Christ, it's with God's grace. You can be near his holiness. With Christ's grace, you can have God's favor. With Christ's grace, you can enjoy his presence. And I dare say, only with his grace can you understand what it is that he is glorious. So here on out, this means our relationship with God is always one that rests on grace. It starts with grace, it continues by grace, and we're going to get to the end by grace alone. So as we started, what does this mean for us as Christians? But that we are always to be hopeful and always to be humble. And what do I mean by this? Well, I'm going to steal a, a sentence from Jerry Bridges, and I just really couldn't improve upon it or I tried just to apply it to this sermon, but I mean it like this. In the first place, you can always be hopeful because your bad days are never beyond the reach of God's grace. You can always be hopeful as a Christian because your bad days are never beyond the reach of God's grace. In other words, in Christ, his grace is always greater than your sin. No matter how bad you messed up this week, no matter how many times you failed him, there is more grace in Christ to forgive. Yes, repent from that sin, absolutely. Mourn that sin, confess that sin, turn from that sin, but know this, he saved you and brought you to faith. He set his love on you when you were a wretched sinner, and so his love never started with you because you were so lovely. Why did it start? Because he graciously chose to love you. That's why. And that hasn't changed. In Christ, we always have reason for hope. But this too, we always have reason to be humble before God and before others. And why is this? To borrow the second part of that Bridges, Jerry Bridges quote, it's because your good days, your good days now, are never beyond the need of God's grace. Your good days are never beyond the need of God's grace. What does this mean? You never mature in the Christian life past needing his grace. 
Why? His grace, understand this, these are not the training wheels of the Christian life. His grace are the wheels on the bike. You got no grace, you got no bike. You got no life. So you never move beyond his grace. You'll never pay God back. You'll never be able to make him proud in that way. You will always be debtors to what he has done for you in Christ. You will always be every day needing his grace, even on your best days. They will never be good enough to make you think or should ever make you think, yeah, maybe I don't need the cross anymore. Oh, we do. And you're glad you do. And so you know what this means. Then in everyday life, that's how we relate to God. In everyday life, if we're people indwelt by this God of grace, what can we do now? We can give grace to others. We can give out favor. We can give out preference and commendation to people that don't deserve it, just like we don't. And get this. If you're willing to live like that, you're willing to expend or pour out that grace like that, you're never going to be more like your graciously glorious God. Let's live that for his sake. Let's pray together. Father, we're humbled and we marvel to discover more about what you're like. And we know the right theology. We've heard it before. That salvation is all by grace. And uh, yet, pray that by your spirit we come to know it in our hearts. What it is that you've raised us up with Christ and seated us with him. So that in the coming ages, you would show the immeasurable riches of your grace in kindness to us in Christ. And in light of that, may we be your workmanship created for good works, but all by grace to walk in this changed life for the glory of Jesus. Uh, So help your church. May we honor you in the way we live this week. May we turn from sin. May we mourn it, but may we have all the hope in the world because our Christ is greater. In whose name we pray, amen.